We're in the foothills of eastern Tennessee. A Lexus sedan nudges down an unpaved, twisty road. A wall of trees surrounds the car. It's like the trees are getting taller. Recalculating. The signal on the GPS keeps going out. The driver's not from around here. She's passing yellow-streaked mobile homes. On one lot, a scrapyard. Dozens of rusted-out cars piled on top of each other. Lost in the backwoods. Deeper and deeper. Your destination is on the left. And then finally, the car's headlights catch on a two-story farmhouse ahead. It's a relief to see it. The car slows and then pulls into the driveway. There's a log cabin on the front of the property. Two other cars are parked here already. Not new, but they look like they've been taken care of. The driver, you already know. Her name is Dorothy Marsick, and her Uncle Vern's murder almost half a century earlier brought her to this remote spot. Dorothy checks the address against the one she had written down. She wonders if she's really in the right place. She's apprehensive, a little scared, as she climbs the stairs to the front door, raised high off the ground. She rings the doorbell. No answer. So she rings again. And then, like you do, even when it doesn't exactly make sense, she knocks. Maybe the doorbell didn't work. Maybe knocking will work. So she knocks louder. Silence. All this way and nothing to show for it. Dorothy's frustrated. On her way back down the stairs, she sees another door. No doorbell. She knocks there, too. Ugh. It's getting colder out here. The car is warm. Dorothy gets back in and calls the phone number from the same piece of paper with the address. She says the call goes straight to voicemail. So Dorothy leaves a message. It's me, Dorothy. I'm in the driveway. She makes more calls. She talks to her cousin, Shannon. Then she calls a man named David. She thinks he lives around here. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected. Or in the dark car, Dorothy doesn't notice the upper door of the house open. A thin woman comes out, her hair in a tight bun. She's dressed conservatively. An ankle-length skirt, a starched white blouse, long-sleeved, buttoned all the way up, a crocheted vest to top it off. If she looks like anyone in the world, it's Suzanne Stordot, her uncle's confessed killer from 1970. Could it be? The woman walks up to the car, peers inside at Dorothy, who's staring down at her phone. Only glass separates them. The woman taps the window glass. Dorothy screams, then jumps out of her seat. Literally. Her head hits the ceiling of her car. Hard. Dorothy, breathing hard, stares out at the face through the window. Is this Suzanne? Is this the woman who killed Vern? She's like a ghost. And the ghost speaks. She says, Dorothy, is that you? It's not Suzanne. This is Donna, Suzanne's daughter. And this is her farm. Dorothy is here because of a discovery Vern's daughter Shannon made. Shannon called Dorothy and said, I found them. They all live in Tennessee. And Donna? She didn't live alone. Inside that farmhouse waiting for Cousin Dorothy were two of the central figures of Dorothy's search for justice. 
David Briggs, who was there the night her uncle was shot, the man that the physical evidence suggested was the actual trigger man, and Suzanne, who had confessed to it. She was 85 years old now, but as Dorothy would soon learn, still a very formidable woman. Welcome to Manslaughter. A bizarre series of events led Dorothy to this reunion in eastern Tennessee, one that included a phone call to David Briggs, who Dorothy had known when she was younger. They were about the same age. The following is based on Dorothy's recollection. Oh, David, this is Dorothy, Dorothy Marsick. Dorothy? No, Dorothy, like the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy Marsick. Who are you? Your cousin. I don't have a cousin named Dorothy. Vernie's niece from way back. Vernie? Who's Vernie? Your, your stepfather back in the late 60s. My stepfather? When they talked, David seemed not to remember who Dorothy was, nor even Vern, his stepfather, the man his mother had confessed to killing, whose body David saw moments after the shooting, the man David himself might have murdered. Those memories weren't gone only buried. Still, Dorothy was not giving up. Later, she called David's sister Donna. As Dorothy remembers it, Donna's husband answered. I said, I'm Donna's cousin. We haven't seen each other for years, and I'm really looking forward to seeing Donna, David, and Suzanne. Dorothy says this is when she found out that Donna and her husband were Messianic Jews who believed Jesus is the Son of God. Have you been saved? Do you accept Jesus? So I said, well, I'd love to learn more about Messianic Jews. And it so happens I'm going to be in your neighborhood Saturday afternoon. And I would love to come and visit for an hour or two. Saturday's our Sabbath and we don't work. But the afternoon is okay. Dorothy had finagled herself an invitation to visit the two people she believed responsible for her uncle's murder, one of whom was the actual killer. On that first night in Tennessee, Dorothy says Donna escorted her into their home. Donna was the daughter of Suzanne's first husband. Suzanne married a man named Harry in 1948 when she was a freshman at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Suzanne dropped out of college after one semester. The next year she was pregnant, and then her only daughter arrived. Suzanne moved to Marinette, Wisconsin with Harry. He was a cabinet maker. The country was heading into a recession. Marinette was on a downswing, too. It was a fading lumber town, far from the action, not that much bigger than where she had grown up. Suzanne and Harry divorced in 1951. I suspect her ambitions had something to do with that. And when she left, she took her daughter with her. Donna and I were about the same age. I met her when she came into my Uncle Vernie's life. Donna and Suzanne's life got a big glow up when they left that little town upstate. They both made it into the Madison Society pages. By 1968, Donna was also among the news items, a headline for being celebrated before she left for Europe. Donna Briggs, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Laverne Stordot, was honored recently at a dinner party at her home. 
Miss Briggs is spending two weeks in New York with the Wallace family before she and Wendy sail for England. They will go to London before traveling in Holland, France, Italy, Yugoslavia, and the Scandinavian countries. Miss Briggs, who will be in Europe for two and a half months, will resume her art studies at the university in September. That's where Dorothy knew Donna, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They came to a campus where 10,000 students had sat in, had rallied against the draft, against Dow Chemical, and against the CIA. She had this long blonde hair, and we hung out sometimes. Oh, she was such a talented artist. And I went to her parties. Drugs, booze, hippies. Oh, and I have a vivid memory of philosophizing with her friends about the advantages of insects having six legs. Forty years later, in Tennessee, Dorothy came face to face with the woman she had known as a young, free-spirited artist. And Donna's husband. He, Rick, was a tall, attractive man with a full head of hair and a long beard. On the lower level was a recreation room, a large wood-paneled space with an old couch, a lounge chair, assorted footstools, all covered with knit afghans of many colors. Scattered around the room were magazines and Bibles, many Bibles. Dorothy says she was really nervous and needed to break the ice. The Donna I met seemed a stranger to me. It had been so many years. I pulled out an old letter from Suzanne from 1981. She'd written me in response to my oldest daughter's birth announcement. Dear Dorothy, hope you enjoy and get a great deal of use out of the enclosed gift. Suzanne sent Dorothy's baby an afghan. Had I known you were expecting an addition to the family, I would have had this afghan there for you to wrap the baby in for her journey back from the hospital to home. Suzanne knitted the afghan herself. I have been burning the midnight oil making it ever since receiving your announcement so that she wouldn't already be walking around by the time it arrived. Aunt Suzanne also enclosed family photos. Vern's family. The enclosed picture is a Stordock family picture. I believe the bearded patriarch would be your great-grandfather. The lady in the circle was his wife. The two daughters and three sons are of your grandfather Oscar Stordock's generation. After warm family memories, the letter quickly changed subjects. I'm presently engaged in a research project funded by the National Institute of Justice, the research arm of the U.S. Department of Justice, on parental kidnapping. A subject every new mother wants to hear about. Suzanne described what she had accomplished since getting out of the mental hospital. She earned a college degree. She received federal funding for her research. I do feel pleased and flattered, though, that the National Institute of Justice thought highly enough of my research proposal to fund it. She even taught sometimes. I'll now be doing research for another year. I begin to wonder if I'll ever return to teaching. And she shared her ambition to become a lawyer. Since I have a minor in law, I'm also contemplating returning for a law degree. By the way, that happened. In fact, Suzanne got another degree, too. When I took my last exam towards the Ph.D., the best thing I could think of was, I'll never again have to take another exam. So we'll see if I'm masochistic enough to go through that again. She signed the letter, Love Aunt Sue. All of this, everything in this letter, came in response to a baby announcement from Dorothy. 
It was 11 years after the painful loss of Dorothy's father figure, a loss Suzanne said she had caused. I didn't understand why Dorothy was sending a baby announcement to the woman responsible for that loss. So I asked Dorothy about it. I had a very different view of Suzanne back then. After my uncle Vernie died, I even visited her in the mental hospital. Nobody else in my family would even think of doing that. She and I wrote to each other, and it was only years later that I realized why. I considered her family. I was part of her family. Because in my own family, bad behavior was common. I guess I had a high tolerance for it. It's, it's a complicated way to understand relationships. In Tennessee, 30-plus years later, Dorothy says she was hoping that her past relationship with Suzanne would be enough to earn the trust of Suzanne's gatekeepers, her daughter and son-in-law. So that letter was like a calling card. I remember Donna reading the letter, but not really reacting. Her face was just blank. Then finally, she told me to follow her upstairs to see Suzanne. On the stairway up to Suzanne's room, Dorothy remembers stepping over books and clothes. Along the way, she meets a young woman in a long blue dress and a white stiff apron. This was a home health aide. At this point, Suzanne is in her 80s. She's bedridden. She needs round-the-clock care. I remember looking out at some large wraparound windows at the darkness outside. Donna left me in the hallway to go talk to Suzanne. My heart was already pounding, then suddenly a bunch of dogs came barreling in, muddy paws and everything, jumping all over me. Well, so much for looking presentable. So much for the new expensive Spanx. Dorothy says that's when Donna reappeared. The shadows were growing longer in Tennessee. Donna said to her, My mother will see you now. The last time Dorothy had seen Suzanne, she had been in a mental hospital. A 20-year-old Dorothy had visited her aunt then to see how she was doing, believing at the time what Susanna told a court, that she was a victim of a psychotic breakdown. And before that, the two women had connected in another mental hospital. When she was 19, Dorothy had suffered a real breakdown of her own. Suzanne had reached out to her. Coming from small-town Wisconsin, Dorothy Marsick grew up in an alcohol-soaked house, one filled with abuse and violence. Maybe it's not surprising that even before she finished college, she sought help coping with that. Working with a psychiatrist helped me begin to unlock my emotions, feelings that had been crushed and exiled my entire life. In trauma, Dorothy says she had shut down her reactions, actually experiencing what she felt, the emotions were becoming overwhelming. My doctor decided I needed to be admitted to a hospital. To the psych ward. On the third day I was there, they said, someone's on the phone for you. I took the call on the hall phone, which meant they let me get out of the room I was sharing with a woman who believed she was the return of Jesus Christ. This was a year before Vern's murder. The woman on the phone was Suzanne. Dorothy thought her aunt was calling to support her. But then she says Suzanne told her something strange, that Dorothy's mother had given birth to a baby during high school, an illegitimate birth, and that's why her mother never finished school. She told me the baby's name was Bob. She then told me that my mother's Aunt Lily adopted Bob and raised him. In the midst of a mental breakdown, Dorothy was learning that she had a half-brother, 
it did not help her recovery. It turned out that my grandmother, whom I trusted very much, obviously knew about Bob. So did my brother. So did everyone else in the family. She says learning this information put more pressure on her. Dorothy's grandmother said this half-brother Bob hated their mother for giving him up and didn't want anything to do with Dorothy's family. So her grandmother said to keep the secret for now. I've always wondered why Suzanne did this at that particular time when I was so vulnerable. It really hurt me. And later, I realized she used what she knew about my family as a weapon. For much of her life, right up until that conversation, the woman Dorothy knew as Suzanne Stordock had her own complicated relationships with family. For one thing, that wasn't the name she was born with. In 1926, on the birth certificate, that name was Eldora Irene Brandon. Her hometown was Millville, with a population just over 200. Shortly after she turned 18, the name Eldora disappeared. Suzanne took her place. It was a hard transition for her family. You know, I, I have a hard time calling her Suzanne because her given name was Eldora. And it broke my parents' hearts when she changed it as soon as she got out on her own. These are the words of one of Suzanne's brothers. We're calling him Franklin to protect his privacy. Dorothy Marsick interviewed him a few years back. And he's older now, in his 80s, so we're recreating his voice. Eldora was one of my dad's favorite aunts. Franklin says he didn't get along with his sister when they were young. They didn't spend a huge amount of time together. Their parents wanted her to have a better life, so she lived 20 miles away in a bigger town during high school. Well, uh, Eldora was uppity and too good for us. Forced my dad to work extra jobs to pay for her to go to high school in Boscobel because Mount Hope wasn't good enough for her. She boarded with a family who owned a drugstore and, uh, and did some work to help pay for a room. She always got mad at me when I called her Eldora about what the hell, the hell with it, huh? Franklin admits she was bright, good in school. That's something a childhood friend of hers remembered. His name is Robert. He knew Suzanne in high school when they were teenagers. She was brilliant, totally, truly brilliant lady. And, you know, sometimes brilliant people, as the ones that I have known, don't have a personality. Some of them don't. Some do. I always admired her for her, <clears throat> her intelligence. Much later, I learned she was a member of Mensa, and I believe she really was a genius. If she'd been born 50 years later, she would have been a CEO. Always planning her next move, especially with people. But Suzanne's parents thought there was something missing. After Vern's death, they talked to a Dane County detective investigating the shooting. They stated that Susie approached life in a very selfish manner without any real affection for anyone other than herself. Talking to the police, Mrs. Brandon justified her opinion by pointing at Suzanne's marriage history. Mrs. Brandon cited several different incidents to justify her opinion. The daughter's four marriages and the havoc that she created in the disillusionment of all these marriages. 
and then went on to state that there has been considerable sickness and hospitalization in the Brandon family. And yet there has never been any sympathetic reaction from Susie, whether it was either the father or the mother. Mrs. and Mrs. James Brandon pointed out that their daughter Susie had a very bad temper and that on occasion she had smashed all the dishes in the house and generally raised hell. Talking to some people from her aunt's past, Dorothy uncovered some recurring themes, temper and turmoil. She used her tantrums for a purpose, to get what she wanted, like to go to school. Eldor was always going to school and it was our responsibility to pay for it. That's why my dad got crippled in the last 24 years of his life. He needed to pay for college tuition in Madison and dad wasn't earning enough money on the farm. So, so he took a roofing job and right at the end, the ladder came unhooked and he fell down 32 feet and mangled his foot. So, so he gimped around for 24 years. In Dorothy's investigations, she concluded it took some effort for Suzanne to leave Eldora behind. When her parents sent her to live above a drugstore in a bigger town for high school, that was the first main street she ever really got to walk down. Dorothy believes that's where she got a taste for a larger life. By the time she was a grown and married woman in Oregon, the impression Suzanne left on folks was that she was someone important. At least that's what Arlene Ace said. They bowled together, but locals in Oregon, like Arlene, didn't know Vern, the big deal law enforcement guy, or his wife very well at all. Uh, Listening to Susie, um, and she talked a lot about um, her uh, work in, or her knowledge of people in Madison. You know, just people whose names I, I would have read about in the paper kind of thing. You know, so she was kind of like... She knew people. She was in a small town. You know, you, you were always interested to hear what big city folks were doing. And she seemed, yeah, she seemed to have that. Um, uh, she liked that. She knew about that. Suzanne had gotten what she wanted, almost. But seeping out from under the surface of her life in Oregon were dark tensions in her relationship with Fern. There's an incident Dorothy remembers from the 1960s, from the breakfast table at Suzanne and Vern's house. Dorothy was a teenager. She says she was eating breakfast with Suzanne's sons, David and Danny. And she saw a fight. The fight was between Suzanne and Vern. And it was about keys. Car keys. This is how Dorothy recalls that fight. Where'd you put the car keys? Here's what I remember. My uncle was in a blue shirt, tie, and suspenders. He took a last sip of coffee and stood up quickly, looking at Suzanne, still in her pink robe with her long hair down her back, reading the front page of the Madison Capital Times. And I remember she ignored him. I said, where are the keys? Silence. Sue, I'm asking you a question. You can go lick yourself for all I care. Dorothy remembers David putting large spoonfuls of oatmeal in his mouth full of sugar. In her book, she describes him sitting there in his boxers and white undershirt, his wild and curly hair covering up parts of his face. Danny was there too, eating nothing, playing with a G.I. Joe and kicking his feet against the table leg. Vern grabbed the newspaper from Suzanne. 
You think you can bully me around, Mr. Big Shot, Mr. Attorney General's office? I just want my car keys. What we want and what we get are two different things. The fight escalated. Dorothy recalls Vern ripping the kitchen apart, searching for the keys. I mean, he needed to get to work. And she says Suzanne, who she describes as grinning like the Cheshire cat, just mocked him. La-dee-da. And Dorothy says Suzanne tossed accusations at Vern. You don't fool me with all these trips to the office on weekends. Who is it? That Charlene, who's always wearing those short skirts? Or maybe Pauline, the one who talks like Marilyn Monroe? Where are my car keys? Dorothy recalls Suzanne finally naming her price for the keys. You won't get them unless you promise not to talk to her. Her royal highness. Janelle. Vern's first wife. The woman Vern left for Suzanne. Anybody who talks to that sugar-infested Jay woman, well, that person is off limits. You get it? That's when you get your keys. And if you ever want sex again from me. That's when Dorothy says Vern found his keys underneath the coffee grounds. Vern was out the door so fast, Suzanne couldn't catch up. So she grabbed that coffee can and threw it hard against the door, cracking the glass in the window. Vern drove off. Dorothy says Suzanne turned toward the table and looked blankly at her and Danny and David, the kids still eating breakfast. Clear up the table, do the dishes, and clean up this mess. I have a headache. It's not always easy to see the end of a love affair to know the moment the pain outweighs the happiness a relationship brings. But that's what might have been happening for Vern and Suzanne Stordock, and it might have been happening the night of his death. The couple began a Saturday night out at the bowling alley. They continued on to a couple of local bars. By the time they went to the sportsman's bar, people overheard them in a squabble. Bar patrons told police the couple bickered over Vern's plans to visit his daughter, Shannon, from his first marriage. Based on the police reports, this is how it might have gone down. I don't care what you think, Sue. I'm seeing my daughter tomorrow. Is there something I should know? It had been a long Saturday night. It was late, and it was damn cold. Arlene Ace and her husband Daryl were in the same bowling league as the Stordocks. Yeah, it, it was fun. It was the, um, you know, the social deal. But after um, bowling, it seemed, if it had not been snowing, how different that evening may have turned out. Vern left the sportsman's bar alone, on foot, to trudge home through the snow. The walk was over a mile, so he had plenty of time to think. Maybe about how he had moved to Oregon, how he had started married life over again with Suzanne, and how he had left his first family behind. He got to his house, but he didn't stay there. Less than an hour later, Vern was on foot, again in the snow, but no longer fully dressed. Back at the bar, Suzanne finally wanted to leave, but she didn't want to drive the new station wagon on snowy, icy roads. 
So Arlene and her husband gave Suzanne a ride home. That's when they saw Vern. Vern was on his way back downtown in his trench coat and pajamas to pick up Susie and the car. The aces scooped Vern up and took him home for a second time. Criminal and domestic abuse expert Sarah Kalin says the imagery of this story stuck with her. Anybody who's ever experienced any sort of domestic abuse or familial abuse as an adult or a child knows that panic when you think, I've got to get them happy again. I've got to get them calm again. And that, to me, just screamed that he was on the receiving end of the control and the manipulation and possibly abuse. Abuse may have been a hallmark of the Stordok's relationship. Suzanne claimed that Vern intentionally burned her with cigarettes. The night he died, Suzanne had one such burn on her shoulder blade. Expert Sarah Kalin says it's important to believe all victims of abuse when they tell their stories. She also says Vern's behavior may tell a story, too. What we do have on the other side are a number of signs that Suzanne was abusive, uh, both emotionally and physically. Among those signs are Dorothy's memories, when Suzanne punished Vern for behaviors she didn't like. So if he was the abuser, if he was the one who had all of the control and was sort of pulling all the puppet strings, this behavior of, you know, getting in a fight with her, confronting her and saying, I'm going to see my daughter tomorrow. She says, no, you're not. And he storms out of the bar. He's angry. And then the next thing is that witnesses see him in his pajamas, in the snow, walking back to the bar. According to Dorothy, sex seems to have been a part of this reward system. She was around her Uncle Vern and Suzanne in these years. She remembers displays of overt sexuality. Like when they'd ride in the car, Suzanne would sit right next to Vern and grope him. She remembers Suzanne explicitly using sex to control him. We'd be having dinner, or we used to play, like, card games or board games a lot, and Suzanne would just stand up and announce, Vern's not getting any more sex until he does what I say. Dorothy believes Suzanne manipulated and abused Vern. An expert Sarah Kalin says Vern's behavior may support her opinion. He's also being um, very clearly manipulated and kind of led around by her where she, you know, she had a lot of the, the, the control and the power, not just in the relationship, but in his life entirely. I mean, the fact that he didn't see his daughter because she said he could not demonstrates that he essentially did what he was told by Suzanne. And what we see in the female version of that narcissist slash domestic abuser is controlling at the outset through through sex through overt sexuality, through um, perhaps dangerous sex or something that the, that the recipient is enthralled by, is something perhaps that is new to them, that is more exciting. Throughout her life, Dorothy says, Suzanne tried to control situations and people to get her way, like with her family when she was young. And where she did, arguments followed. Like what Dorothy saw when she hid Vern's car keys in the coffee. People saw, witnessed her, numerous people inside the family and outside the family, witnessed explosive rage on her part, witnessed her throwing things at Vern, witnessed her physically threatening him. And so it's, you know, while it is certainly less common for females to be the abusers, it is not unheard of. 
If abuse was a part of this relationship, neither Suzanne nor Vern spoke about it to other people before he died. So this is fascinating for me personally because these are the two areas that I've studied the most, psychopathy and domestic violence. Sarah Kalin isn't just a former cop. She's an expert in domestic abuse. I find the similarities between their cycles to be nearly identical. And there's a great deal of crossover between the two. Many dangerous serial offenders exhibit domestic violence before they engage in other types of violence, more predatory on the general public at large. There are also a large number of traits we see in the standard tests and measurements of psychopathy reflected in repeat domestic abusers. One need not always be the other, but they are more often than not linked hand in hand. Narcissism is the most common personality disorder or trait shared between the two in its simplest terms, but it is not the only one. Sarah Kalin says men especially can withdraw in these circumstances. Like law enforcement or, you know, in his his past in the military. For someone like Vern, if he was being physically abused by a tiny wife, um, it's probable, not just possible, that he never would have told a soul. That he would have thought, well, I can can handle it. Um, She's smaller than I am. Ultimately, I can protect myself. The mystery of any relationship belongs to the people in it. What happens behind closed doors most often stays there. So it seems to have been with Vern and Suzanne. We may have some clues. Police reports after Vern's murder include evidence that Suzanne had a lover, evidence given by her parents. Mrs. Brandon stated that Susie brought a boyfriend to their home in rural Boscoville last spring, 1969. According to the Brandons, their daughter told them that Vern knew about this other man. Mrs. Brandon stated that Laverne was aware of this incident and, according to Mrs. Brandon's grasp of the situation, he had given Susan approval to go to Boscobel with this other man. I questioned the Brandons as to the identity of this subject. The Brandons know who this boyfriend is, who resides in Boscobel now, but they don't wish to reveal his identity at this time. Suzanne had left three previous marriages. Vern had left one. But if, as Dorothy suspects, he was considering leaving, that would be something different, unprecedented for Suzanne. She had never been the one left behind. And we have a lot of indicators telling us that Vern was in the process or was perhaps planning um, to begin the process of separating from Suzanne. And so like any victim of domestic violence, this ups the stakes for him. And, um, you know, the fight they had that night is pure speculation. But if he had said to her, that's it, I'm done, or had told her, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, this is, you know, this is the end for us, um, it is completely plausible that she would have killed him purely for that, purely for that, just like any domestic abuser. Kaylin says, in an abusive relationship, a loss of control can be fatal. And at the end of the day, as domestic violence escalates, it often ends in homicide. You know, particularly at a time, the most dangerous time for any victim of domestic violence is either just before or just after they actually break off from the abuser. Suzanne's lawyers and medical experts successfully claimed a psychotic break caused her to shoot Vern. 
Early in her encounters with police, her representatives also helped her lay the groundwork for the idea that she herself was abused. The night Vern died, Suzanne pointed out a cigarette burn on her shoulder. The police took a picture of a small red mark. Dorothy Marsick interviewed Suzanne's brother. We're calling him Franklin to protect his privacy. He told Dorothy while in the hospital after the shooting, his sister claimed she was abused. I went and visited her there, and her reason started out. She said she shot him. And the reason was he had burned her with a cigarette, and uh, she said that's the last time he's going to hurt me. If Vern and Suzanne's attraction and love turned sour, it might explain animosity between them, a crime of passion, a sudden shift. But it doesn't explain what happened in Oregon the night Vern died or the physical evidence the house itself held. Dorothy Marsick believes Vern's death may have been planned. It was David's gun. Nothing suggests she herself pulled the trigger. But what if she controlled her son? What if she manipulated David into shooting Vernie? Expert Sarah Kalin says some circumstances point to that that David was involved in whatever was going on. It's very, it's it, it's much more plausible that it was an ambush and even in a short-term premeditation for him to have used something that he could be safely out of the room. David said he was in the bedroom across the hall and the door to the master bedroom was open. But Vernie was naked in an old drafty house on a freezing Wisconsin night? His clothes were rumbled in a pile at his feet. Why would he be naked with the door open? Suzanne's brother Franklin went to look around the house in Oregon after Vern's death. Dorothy talked to him about that. What he describes sounds almost like a sniper's nest. I mean, you know, that's very deliberate when you're putting it on a chair like that, and, and you've got to put the pants on the chair first and then the gun on top of that. It's not, you're not just in, lost in some wild moment. Isn't that feels deliberate too? Well, it was for them to come home, and he was waiting for them. Suzanne herself told people that she was going to kill Vern. Those people were her parents. And her parents? They told the district attorney where they lived, two counties over, according to the police report. DA James Bowl had received information from the DA of Grant County, a James Halferty, that the Brandons had appeared in their office supposedly stated that their daughter told them she was going to kill Stordock. Mrs. Brandon informed me that their greatest concern at this time was that Mrs. Susan Stordock's two brothers would become involved in the whole mess surrounding their daughter. They then clarified the statement by saying that the two boys are attempting to raise a cash bond for Mrs. Stordock. This has the parents very upset. The mother then said specific circumstances reflected on each son's marital problems and felt that their two sons getting involved in Susie's troubles would only create more problems and more family chaos. The way the police report reads, Suzanne told her parents that Vern would die before it happened. A detective went out to interview her parents. When he got there, the Brandons took it all back. Dorothy has a theory about why Suzanne's parents changed their story. The parents drove to the district attorney in Grant County and reported that their daughter Suzanne had threatened to shoot her husband Vern Stordock the previous week. By the time they got home and told their sons, their sons must have been very upset. Why are you saying this about her sister? You're going to get her more in trouble. 
So when the detectives arrive to question the parents, they change their story, and they use the time to complain about the bail because the judge had reduced the bail so low that now the brothers might be able to raise it, but with a lot of financial difficulty. That's my theory based on a lot of research I did. Dorothy went down those Tennessee back roads seeking answers from one or maybe two people capable of planning a homicide. And people close to her told her not to do it. As it was, I was a little nervous. My friends were all, don't don't go to Tennessee, don't go there, you got to watch out. And, you know, it's not like writing an article about the CEO of Amazon. You know, it, it's you're writing about murders and murders. Inside that country house, Dorothy may have thought her journey for truth was near its conclusion. Her hard work was paying off. Her evidence was stacking up. She was learning enough to find closure about her uncle's death. She could move on just as Suzanne had. Only Dorothy's journey was actually just starting. I don't think what happened to my Uncle Vernie was an isolated incident. I believe that Suzanne and David may have killed other people. Next on Manslaughter. Um, the two women were both very strong-willed uh, women who know what they want and, and don't stop at anything to get it. But I just can't believe that, that either one of them was uh, willing to settle. Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franz Blau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co-host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franzblau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordach-Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodow, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonsalves, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martine Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clearcut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Harlan, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondery. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson. <laughs>